0: Taken from Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the merchants and their customers. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the stools of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from bringing in merchandise. He taught them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a place of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and the teachers of the law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so enthusiastic about Jesus' teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. Thank you very much, Alison. Me bits and pieces here. Good morning. My name's John. I live just down the road. And uh, that's why I preach it from time to time, just grounds of proximity, really. Um, well, the passage today was actually slightly longer than the one that Alison read, uh, but she didn't forget to read the bit that she was supposed to. It's just that I was only going to speak about part of it. Actually, Mark 11... Uh, 15 to 26. There's so much in it. When I looked at it the other day, I was thinking, blimey, All right, there's six or seven opportunities here. So I thought I'd cut it down to just one, really, although there's, some, there's more than that in it, um, which means I get to avoid having to talk about what was going on with a certain withered fig tree, which is probably just as well, because I'm not quite sure that I know um, and all I would have been doing was be sharing my ignorance with you, but, uh, which I might still do, actually, um, this morning. This passage that Alison has just read um, is, I think, probably one of my top ten passages in the New Testament, I think. Um, why would that be, do you think? Why do you think I might think so much of this particular passage? You can remember what Alison just read, can you? That sometimes it's okay to be angry. Yes, that's more or less exactly why I like it. What I like is it sort of debunks the sort of very easy default, gentle Jesus, meek and mild myth, as it were, that that's all he was. He was that, of course. You know, Jesus, very quiet, great with children. Um, you know, uh, Prince of Peace, which of course he was. But when we talk about Jesus as Prince of Peace, we forget that Prince of Peace was someone who once said, this is from Matthew 10, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, Matthew 10 is a fascinating passage in its own right, actually, full of extremely challenging stuff. But it's right that we should be challenged. And I think one of the things I love about this passage is that it really does challenge us in huge ways, I think. And hopefully I can communicate some of that today. And it does challenge us which I think is a very important thing to get out of the way quite early on, it's not, it challenges those that Jesus challenged at the time. If we just look and go, yeah, right, you're right, Jesus. I'd have done that too, because they're bad guys, but I'm all right. Then we'll have missed the point. This is sort of, um, anyway, it's it's that idea that sometimes it's right to be angry, I think is, is great. And I think I want to look at that. Because anger can be a problem for us. There have been a series of movies, none of them any good, called Anger Management. Um, and we do have that issue, the anger, anger, especially in the church. Anger oh, is always a bad thing. We're supposed to be really polite. We get cross with one another. That's a bad thing, somehow. And Jesus was, I think, angry quite a lot. The thing he's physically angry about in this passage, he was verbally angry about a great deal. And I'll come on to touch on some of those. But there's a real problem. I remember buying a book at the back here, which is which is entitled "Many Years Ago: Why Men Hate Coming to Church." Uh, it was an interesting one. I wasn't trying to find kindred spirits in there exactly. I was just trying to understand, obviously. Um, and one of the things that the, the writer spoke about was this idea that actually we men don't like it so much because actually we argue a lot. We argue a lot, then we have a pint and get on with life, but we're not allowed to in church because because we think it'll fester. And somehow, you know, we're not allowed to, to really engage with issues that we actually feel passionate about. And here's Jesus, not just feeling passionate, but being very passionate. But it's important to get anger right. I, I was thinking about trying to get a clip. Who, who, who knows well the final Star Wars film, The Return of the Jedi, the last one of the first three? Okay, yeah, we, we know. Really well. Right at the end, that's where the nasty emperor is trying to make his final play to get Luke Skywalker, the, uh, the, the, the really good guy, over to the dark side. And uh, right at the end, there's a, just a brilliant bit. Unfortunately, I can't do his voice, and I won't play the clip. But, uh, but, but the, the emperor's going, good, I feel your anger. But then goes on to say, which might be a good thing, actually. I sometimes, you know, we can say that to yourselves. You might say that to your missus once, a, once in a while. You know, yes, darling, I, I can feel it. Um, <laughs> but then he goes on to say, use your aggressive feelings, boy. Let hate flow through you. Give yourself to the dark side. And that's why we're scared of anger sometimes. Because we know it can be a very negative thing. We've seen it very negative and we shy away from it. So getting that right, understanding when it's appropriate, is extremely important. And so what we need to understand is here, this wasn't just Jesus being an angry man. This was Jesus being angry for a particular purpose, and with a particular end in mind. In fact, really, he was angry, I think, for two reasons. And what aroused his physical anger on this occasion were things that he, as I said earlier, he, he, he was very angry about in terms of how he spoke on other occasions. I'll come on to that in a moment. But I suppose I want to just start by this whole idea of if we at all believe in that idea of asking the question, what would Jesus do? You know, people have bracelets about that, which I think is a pretty good way of thinking about life generally. We have to allow for the fact that sometimes what Jesus would do is get angry, proper angry. And that we need to allow for the fact that that might be a proper response for us in certain uh, circumstances. And where I think it's appropriate to be angry angry is when we might legitimately be able to call it righteous anger very important i think to have that phrase before it just anger what was that but righteous anger and when jesus seems to express it is in the context of injustice and of hypocrisy not you know not really elsewhere he wasn't just an angry guy those were the things that got him angry and do you know, it didn't get him angry just as a matter of principle, so to speak, which it might do. What got Jesus angry was when he saw God's people dealing in injustice and being hypocrites. And so we need to think about that for ourselves, I think. I think it's very important that we should think about for ourselves, because again, it would be very easy, as I said before, to think about the passage we've just read and things in general. Oh, they are terrible, aren't they? they, they yes, they are. And we all should always think back to, to, to Luke 6, Luke 6, 41, 42, when Jesus talks about, you hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye <clears throat> before you seek to take the speck out of somebody else's. That's a very good check, I think, on our righteous anger as well. So we're not just getting cross, we're not just feeling self-righteous, but our righteous anger needs to start at home. We need to be really clear that we are angry from the position of strength, so to speak. So that it is genuine righteous anger rather than just something we might be actually just, as it were, transferring, you know, the, the responsibility we have to others. They're worse than us, perhaps, or they're bad, so I can really focus on them as opposed to my role in this. Um, it's worthwhile looking at the, the, the context, obviously, for this specific passage. Jesus driving people out of the temple courts who were selling stuff, changing money. Um, and what was all that about? And I, I, I think I need to start with a confession here, is that I... I've been reading Leviticus this week. And, and, and that's, that's quite a thing to say, and I hope you'll stand by me in it. Um, those of you who have or are currently reading Leviticus, if you're reading the Bible in a year, you'll be in Leviticus at the moment, more or less. It's kind of hard work a lot of the time. And it's hard work a lot of the time because it seems to be endless types of instructions about different types of sacrifice. And when those instructions were first given at Moses' time, they were for sacrifices that were um, presented in the tabernacle, which is a great big tent um, that moved around the place because that's what the nation of Israel was doing at the time. By Jesus' time, by this time that we read it, um, the sacrifices were brought to the temples. That's why everybody's there. Pilgrims from far and wide, people may be making a special you know, once-a-year journey, a special festival, but there were lots of things you could, uh, in, in Levitical law, as it were, you could bring sacrifices for. Now, although there's a lot that one might say about what's happened, certainly from our perspective about sacrifice, about Jesus having basically been the ultimate sacrifice, so that those procedures have changed for us, at the time they were still there, but what was happening was, basically, that people were making money out of poor people. There was a religious requirement, for people to do these things, and there was a lot of money being made. And the money was being made by the religious authorities who fully sanctioned and supported what was going on. And then we start to see injustice. Essentially, we start to see a tidy profit being made from the poor and the poor faithful. And what should have been a holy place for God-focused activity, the temple, had become essentially a marketplace. So it's not just the fact of it having been a place, if you like, of some amount of trade. It's the fact that, they, that holy act, so to speak, religious devotion, had been turned to profit by many. In other words, again, classically, you will get the authoritative few making money out of the poor. So you don't have to go out the bag and turn that table over later on, okay? because that's good trading... In God's house, all right. Just don't get too excited about this. You might, as I might do, go and say, "I think you're making too much profit on these yogurt-coated raisins. Could I have ten p off?" Okay, but that's as far as you're prepared to go, all right. Besides, of course, the profit is all ploughed back in, so no one's making any unjust money. That was what was going on in the temple court. Basically, was injustice and a certain amount of hypocrisy because this was all happening in the name of religious practice. And the people were being exploited. Jesus was not happy. And what I love about this, when you say, take the opportunity, as I have had on this occasion, I'm going to let you in, so to speak at the moment, is Jesus just uses a couple of phrases, which are bits of quotes from two passages. The phrases are, the house of prayer, you've turned my house of prayer into a den of robbers. The house of prayer comes from Isaiah 56, and the den of robbers comes from Jeremiah 7. And the people who were listening to Jesus at the time will have known that. Or most of them will have known the detail behind. But we don't, so I'll read it to you if that's all right. So here's a bit from Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and to hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. And give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the house of prayer bit. All prefaced by maintain justice and do what is right. Then I will accept your sacrifices. In Jeremiah, I love this. Golly, it's hard to read this though sometimes when you think of ourselves. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly if you do not oppress the foreigner the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever but look you are trusting in deceptive words deceptive words that are worthless Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? He's angry. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? They'll have known what Jesus meant by saying den of robbers. They'll have known Jeremiah 7. And that's why, if you look at the end of this passage, well, so the end of the passage we read, verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. They knew he was criticizing them. They knew exactly what his point was. that they were exploiting the faithful poor for financial gain, using religious practice to establish and consolidate their own power, authority, and prosperity. Now, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others of the contemporary religious elite was a recurring theme of Jesus' ministry. As I said, this incident we read about is reflective of many things he had said and the heart of it, I suppose, I don't want to cheapen this in a sense, but it's like with Spider-Man. you know what was said to Spider-Man. It's, it's, it's fiction, but you know what was said to Spider-Man was, with great responsibility, sorry, with great power comes great responsibility. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying. You're supposed to be leaders. You're supposed to set the example. You're supposed to set the example. People are looking to you to find the way to me. And look what you've done. And right there is a point, and I'll come back to this, when we need to think about that speck and the log thing. He's not just saying, at the time it was being said to the religious authorities, he could be saying that to you today. People are looking to you, me, to you, to find Jesus. Will they? Will they, through you, through me, Interesting to see what Jesus said about hypocrisy. It's a, da- it's a word my dad used to hate because it was so powerful. He said, you've got to be very careful when you use this. Uh, the version of the NIV, I think, uses the word hypocrite 16 times when Jesus uses the word, sorry, 16 times referring to incidents like this. Let me just quote a few for you because I think the context and what Jesus says to back it up are very important. Woe to you, teachers of the law. This is from Matthew 23. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter while not forgetting the former. In other words, it's not either or. It's not you shouldn't do things like tithing. You've got to do both. You've actually done the outward form. We tithe, but actually, you're not interested in justice, mercy, or faithfulness. Another time, this appears in two Gospels, Mark and Matthew, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples according to, live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with desire with defiled hands? Jesus answered, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is from Isaiah 29, Jesus quoting it. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Again, that was a specific criticism of Isaiah, of the people at the time, and Jesus is using that to criticize the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But ask yourself, have we let go? Have I let go? Where do I let go of the commands of God because of human traditions? I'm used to doing this. I go to church. What, what could possibly go wrong now? You know, that kind of thing. We need to be asking ourselves these questions. But what I like is that Jesus didn't merely criticize hypocrisy and justice. He explained clearly what the alternative was, as it were, such as in the following passage, this is from Matthew 22, where again, the religious bigwigs are trying to bring Jesus down with some other clever questioning, Hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees thought, you see this now, right, he's managed to sort the Sadducees out, but the Pharisees thought, we'll get him. Clever question or something. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Do you know the answer? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is saying, the whole of your holy book, if we had to boil it down into a couple of things as this, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is showing what the way to go And you can see really here, I think, the heart, the seat of his anger. The right way for God's people to live had been made very clear to them from the very beginning. It's a way of life that is different. Back in Leviticus in those times, how God dealt with the Israelites was, you see these nations around you, this is not how you're to live. You're to live differently. And yet... And that different way was a way based on love, a love for God first and because of God for others. And yet what we find is that those very people who had been given, so to speak, that responsibility, that charge to live differently, to live a God-centered life, to live a life of love, well, they certainly got round to loving themselves very well, but not their neighbors as themselves, and seemingly not God, other than in the breach. They were preaching the way, but not practicing it. Essentially, and that's the heart, I think, of Jesus' righteous anger here. And for us, the right way to live is still that same way, to respond to God's call, to love him first and love others ourselves. That's still for us. That's something we have every day. The responsibility, a charge on us as his people, to live differently to how the world would live. Now, as I said earlier, the sacrificial protocols for us have changed. Of course, because Jesus made the supreme sacrifice once and for all on our behalf. But the call to love God and to show it is as strong as ever. I've quoted a few things, but let me just give you a few other, couple of other passages just to help you sort of just, I suppose, nail this idea of how we should live because of love and how God thinks about the form of religious practice. rather than the the fact of it, so to speak. Here's Deuteronomy. These are famous passages. Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good? I often find when I read through the, the, the five books of Moses at the beginning, like it's kind of interesting. There's some good stories in Genesis and Exodus, and it's a little bit bogged down in Leviticus and Numbers, and Deuteronomy is a breath of fresh air. It's not easy, but it's a breath of fresh air, because here we find it boiling down. If those two things that Jesus said before, love God, love your neighbors as yourself, of the, of the whole of the Scripture, so to speak, there's an extent to which the Deuteronomy, that passage, then nails all that has gone before in terms of that look. Yes, that you do this and do that and but this is the heart of it, to walk in obedience to God, to love him, and to serve him with all your heart and soul. In Micah 6, um, another uh, small prophecy here from Micah, he says this on God's behalf. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is still in the Old Testament times. This is still one of the prophets. These are still the people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees formerly would have revered at the time. He's nailing it. Yes, all that sacrificial stuff, sacrificial stuff but that's all worthless. Unless you act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And a verse that I love from the New Testament, something that James put in, at the, well, at the end of the, what is now the first chapter of James Religion. Do you get that? When people say, are you religious? I, I always want to quote James 1:27 27 at them. I always do in a way that, that makes sense. Yeah, no, only in this way I want to be religious. Right? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When people say, are you religious, or people call people religious, you, you know sometimes, I certainly do with people, they're kind of starting to sneer already. Do you, like, are you pompous? Or do you say you love God? Or are you into those funny clothes? You know, that's, that's a lot of what I think they mean. Or perhaps they, they've just come to understand that that's what religion is, it's a form. And I always want to say something like that. Saying one thing and doing another is the popular definition of hypocrisy, isn't it? Fleshing out that a little book I read recently suggested that Christians become hypocrites when we do one or more of the following. Pay more attention to reputation than character. Carefully follow certain religious practices while allowing our hearts to remain distant from God, like rocking up every Sunday, but between Sunday lunchtime and next Sunday morning you wouldn't want to see what I do. And also, the third one would be to emphasize our virtues and others' sins. And the tragedy of Christians living in hypocrites is not, of course, that people think badly of us, of me. It's that people think badly of God. It's often said, I think, and with repetition I don't think undermines the core of the truth in this, that actually... The church has often seemed to be just about the worst possible advert for God, for Jesus. And you look around today, and there's still the opportunity to do that. Still, certainly, while that's a gross oversimplification, there's still plenty of opportunities around. They're always happy for people to say, well, if God is like that, I don't want to know a thing about him. And again, we need to turn that to ourselves. If God is like you, golly, that's a challenge for us, isn't it? If someone we know, someone at work, says, well, if Jesus is is like you, I don't want to know a thing about him. The sad thing is that Jesus said, John 13, by this will everyone know. Sorry, Jesus, uh, John 13, he said, not only just will will they know you're just my disciples, if you love one another. It was a command to love, followed by that. I command you to love one another. And that's how people will know. That's just the loving one another. I command you to know that. This is how people will know. He said, "They are going to look to you to know about me." We should live like that, shouldn't we? We should live like that. It's not a matter of academic status or perhaps our own reputation. It's a matter of Jesus. People are looking those are not in the church, not that I said. they're looking at us, and they're supposed to. It's not an accident as opposed to. Jesus said it. So we ought to get angry, I think, when we see injustice and hypocrisy practiced. But we need to think get angry first when we apply that to ourselves. We must start with my life, with your life. We can, I think, also get angry, think about it in the context of other Christians. You know, a jealous regard for God's reputation, I think, is something that should be on our hearts. What we do about it might be a challenge, but I go back to that quote from Isaiah 29 that Jesus quoted when he was talking about you hypocrites. These people, Christians in this context, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The body of Christ must, must Focus on representing Jesus. Well, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. They've let go of the commands of God, and are holding on to human traditions. If you were to ask any sort of random sample of people, you know what they felt about the church, they'd probably see it all in the context of tradition, various traditions of this, that, and the other. You know, they they do this, they do that. Christians do. You know, churches are like that. Not what is at the heart of it, not faith, not God, not Jesus, not what should come from it. And we should, of course, as well, I think. It's it's right for us to to allow for righteous anger in the context of hypocrisy and injustice in the world at large. But we must work through from ourselves, I think, to the church before we get the others. If we go straight for the top one, you're doing, you world, you're bad, then that's possibly the greatest hypocrisy of all if we haven't got the other things right. Isn't it true that I think a lot of people think what they think negatively about the church because we obsess, let me say, about gay marriage legislation. We obsess about women bishops, for example. And we seem to be relatively casual about injustices of the type that Mark has spoken about already, about fair trade, about waste, about everyday things like that, about righteous living, to be perfectly honest. I think it's a real challenge for us. What I'd like us to do, can you stand with me, please?